Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Would you agree or disagree with this statement? It's a statement by an Anglican in England by the name of John Stott in his book Between Two Worlds. He makes this statement. Nothing is more nauseating to contemporary youth than hypocrisy, and nothing more attractive than sincerity. Young people hate our adult shams and subterfuges. They have a very sensitive nose with which they can smell the faintest odor of religious humbug from a considerable distance. I would tend to agree with that statement. People hate hypocrisy. Often when asked why someone doesn't go to church, they reply, because of all the hypocrites there. And, and it's easy to bristle at that statement, but if we're honest, there's some truth to that statement. Modern Christianity is marked by hypocrisy. And if we're honest, our own lives are often marked by this. If I'm honest, my own life is often marked by this. We say we love God, but we only obey when it's convenient or fits our thinking. We say we're a child of God, but our attitude is marked by ungodliness. We say one thing and do another. Make excuses for this hypocrisy, but, but at its core, it's still hypocrisy. In our text this morning, Jesus addresses the hypocrisy that is found in us all. And he does so by using a circumstance in which most of us struggle with hypocrisy probably than any other area. Civil authority. Politics. Now, let me make this statement right here at the outset. This text for this morning for us was sovereignly ordained by God. I don't, as a general rule, pick and choose text based on what I think you guys need at the moment. There are times, for instance, we went to Matthew 6 early in the COVID crisis. We went to Romans 14 before we moved back into the building. But as a general rule, you guys know this, we work verse by verse through a book. This text was scheduled for this morning a year ago. So this text was not in response to anything that has happened in the last few weeks. But it is needful for us this morning. I say that because this is going to be a challenging text. I ask you that as we work through it, that you keep an open heart and an open mind, asking God where you need to change. Because all of us are going to struggle with what we talk about. So let's work on it together. Our text this morning begins in verse 13 of Mark chapter 12. Mark writes, And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, 
whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We're going to look at this text in two parts. The first part is the approach by the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus and, and the, de the demonstration of their hypocrisy. And then we'll look at the way Jesus revealed their hypocrisy and how this applies to us. So let's begin with this demonstration of their hypocrisy. We, we all know what hypocrisy looks like, but we are incredibly blind to hypocrisy in our own hearts in our own lives, or we believe that we'll get away with it without notice. And this was the case with the leaders as they came to Christ in order to trap him. And we note their hypocrisy in three ways. First, we note it through their forces, through the group that came. It says, they, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Now, not living in the first century Israel, uh, we're prone to skip over this important note. But the two groups that are mentioned here that joined forces to eliminate Jesus weren't friends. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians were at complete opposite ends of just about everything. The Pharisees were the most extreme advocates of, of religious law and following the Word of God and, and following things to the T. They were known for this. The Herodians, on the other end, were the least religious and, and regularly violated religious laws. The Pharisees were focused on the law of God, while the Herodians were focused on the law of Rome. The Pharisees were devoted to Israel. The Herodians were devoted to the Roman Empire. The Pharisees were religious. The Herodians were political. Yet they came together to ask Jesus an intensely political question with religious overtones. They would not have agreed on the answer necessarily, but they agreed on Jesus. They hated him. In today's world, this would be perhaps like uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus and the uh, liberal squad of four getting together and working on something. Maybe it'd be like you know, Michigan fans and Michigan State fans getting together and agreeing on our hatred of Ohio State. Something to that effect is what this looked like. But this, this group came as if they really wanted an answer. They joined forces, it says, to trap Jesus. That, that very phrase in itself is interesting. That word trap is only used here in the New Testament. And it's, it's a word that we would be familiar with. It's the idea of trying to trap an animal. Some of you are attempting to trap beavers or raccoons or squirrels on your properties. And that's, that's what they were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to trap him. Second, we note their hypocrisy in their flattery. Look at what they said. Verse 14, they came to him and said, teacher, and you can feel it just dripping off them, right? Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. They, they begin by claiming to acknowledge that Jesus is a man of integrity. Now, now, never mind the fact that they've been trying to kill him for three years, but he's a man of integrity. Uh, they claim to acknowledge that he's not swayed by others. And they claim to acknowledge that he pays no attention to who they are 
And they claim to acknowledge that he teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth as God's unprejudiced spokesman. Now, the interesting thing about this statement is actually every single one of the things they said is true. But they didn't think so. Beware those who flatter, those who come with the constant compliment in order to gain your favor or manipulate you to where they want you. How do we avoid that? Well, we do this by not putting stock into their compliments, keeping a right view of ourselves, you ourselves, in light of Scripture. Any ability or success is a gift from God and God alone. After flattering Jesus, they then present their fictitious question. They didn't want to learn. They wanted to trap Jesus. So, so they came up really with an ingenious plan. Get Jesus involved in politics. The first century Israel was no different than today, right? You want to divide a room faster? Start talking about politics. And so they did. They asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? What are they talking about? That word taxes there is the word census. It's the word we get census from. Just transliterated that word over. In other words, it was a poll tax, a tax on the census. Since 86, Jews had been required by the Roman Empire to pay tribute money into the emperor's treasury. And this tax was based on the census of Quirinius, mentioned in Luke 2 at the birth of Jesus. Some Jews flatly refused to pay it. We will not pay this tax because for them it was an admission of the Roman right to rule. In fact, this led to a revolt under a man named Judas the Galilean. And the Jews struggled with this tax more than any other because it wasn't a tax on their land or on their goods or on their income. It was a tax on their person. It consisted of of one denarius a year. So they weren't uh, struggling with it because it was an exorbitant high amount. It was one denarius a year, the equivalent of a day's wage. What made this tax more hateful than the rest was its implication that Caesar owned them while they were God's possession. It was a symbol of foreign domination. Further, it had to be paid with a coin that bore the image of the emperor and an, an offensive inscription. We'll get to that in a moment. Josephus, the early historian, informs us about this struggle as he describes Judas the Galilean and his rallying points for the people to get them to his cause. Josephus says, He, Judas, called his fellow countrymen cowards for being willing to pay tribute to the Romans and putting up with moral masters in the place of God. They have an unconquerable love of freedom since they have accepted God as their only leader and master. The, the theology underlying this language is that allegiance to God and to Rome as a pagan occupying power are fundamentally incompatible. You, you can't submit to Rome and God at the same time. Now we should note that while the Pharisees disliked paying this tax, they did pay it. Otherwise, they would not be in leadership. And the Herodians had no problem paying the tax. 
So they came and asked Jesus if it was lawful, according to the Bible, to pay this tax. And this was not a small, abstract theological question. For the Jews, this was a serious and deeply impassioned issue. It was the political question of the day. And as a result, this question places Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, yes, it's lawful to pay this tax, then he's going to make all the people in the crowd mad at him that don't agree with it. But if he says, no, it's not lawful to pay the tax, well, then the Roman Empire would come and would arrest him and quite possibly put him to death for that act of insurrection. You see, Rome was very sensitive to the potential of insurrection, especially during the Passover, when all these Jews were coming to Jerusalem with these high nationalistic feelings. So they would not uh, put up with any kind of insurrection. They could be counted on to move with force against any rebels. These men had the goal of trapping Jesus. They had no desire to learn. But Jesus knew this, and so he reveals their hypocrisy. Verse 15, But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Immediately, Mark informs us that Jesus is aware of their hypocrisy. He, he knows their question is insincere. They didn't want an answer they're wrestling with. They're all paying this tax, or they would have been in serious trouble. But we see Jesus' ingenious answer. And from it, we learn some important lessons for us today. Jesus begins with a question himself. Why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. Immediately, Jesus calls them out. He reveals openly what everyone knew privately. They don't care about the answer. They just want Jesus gone. So he asks for a denarius. What, why is this important? Well, as I mentioned, this was a highly offensive coin to many Jews. You see, the denarius was a Roman coin containing the image of Caesar. In this case, it was most likely the image of Tiberius Caesar, the son of Caesar Augustus Octavian, the nephew of Julius Caesar. It also had two inscriptions on it. On the one side of the coin, it read Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, he was claiming to be a son of God and God himself. And on the other side of the coin, it simply read high priest. As the Caesar in Rome, and as Caesar worship was a major part of the Roman religion, the Caesar was considered the high priest of Rome. As God, he could help them access all the other pantheon of gods that they worshipped. And, and so many Jews flatly refused to even carry these coins. They, they saw them as pagan because of the paganism they proclaimed. And it's quite possible that Jesus wanted his opponents to produce this coin themselves to demonstrate their own hypocrisy, that they were willing to carry these things. They were trying to trap Jesus in this question while they themselves had already settled it in their minds. And then Jesus gives an answer that's, that's both instruct, that, that is both instructive to us regarding hypocrisy, but also in regard to our own response to ungodly or unjust or immoral civil authority. 
Now, as I mentioned, this text was sovereignly scheduled for us today. We walk through Mark verse by verse. Further, Friday, I actually wrote this well before anything came out on Friday. But it demonstrates God's sovereign authority for us. Verse 16, they brought one. He said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Jesus begins by instructing us to submit to civil authority. He instructs us to render to Caesar the civil authority the things that are Caesar's. The word render, it means to give back or to pay back what is owed the economics of the world were subjected to, controlled by, and maintained by the Roman Empire. And the very use of, of this Roman coin symbolized their dependence on the subject people to the benefits of Rome. And to use that coin to pay the poll taxes to recognize that indebtedness. And so they said that verb render suggests that the payment of the taxes is not only permitted by God, but is expected by God. It is, it is right in itself so that to withhold it is to, in fact, defraud the government and disobey God. Everyone participated in and accepted that economic system that the Roman Empire provided, and in doing so, they had the obligation of paying to that system the taxes that belonged to it. And Jesus is clearly teaching that paying taxes to a secular government is an obligation. The verb renders refers to the paying back of what is owed. Now let's be honest. America was built on a rebellion. And to be an American is to be a bit of a rebel. It's like built into our DNA. We're rebels at heart. This past week I came across a video uh, from a news station in Los Angeles. Now, I don't know if it was the California governor or if it was Los Angeles mayor, but one of them put a ban on fireworks through the 4th of July because of the dry climate there. It's like a tinderbox out west. And so they put a, a ban on fireworks. And this particular video was from a helicopter flying over Los Angeles the night of July 4th. And it looked like every single citizen had bought hundreds of fireworks. They were going off by the thousands into the air. It seemed to be a blatant statement, right? The governor or the mayor can't tell me what to do. The very question asked of Jesus could be asked today in any number of ways. Well, they come down really to the same two questions. Am I obligated to obey an unjust, immoral government? And do I have to obey the government when they tell me to do something I disagree with or don't like? And Jesus' answer is yes. We are to obey the government in their areas of authority. Now, lest we think we are taking this text out of context, let's turn over to Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. Paul built on this statement by Jesus at the very beginning of Romans 13. Paul said this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, 
And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, uh, conduct but to bad would you have fear, no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. What he's saying is that every person, regardless of religion, political party, or anything else, is to submit to the governing authorities. To fail to submit to the government except where they contravene the express law of God, is to fail to submit to God himself. You might see it as patriotism. patriotism. God sees it as sin. Perhaps you might say, but God doesn't want that person in that position. But Paul informs us that no authority exists except from the divine placement by God. Note he says, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. That statement that authority exists by the institution of God means that God actually placed that person in authority. Let me be plain here. God does not simply allow people to be elected into positions. God actually places them there. President Trump was placed by God into that position. Governor Whitmer was placed by God into that position. Senator Shirky was placed by God into that position. Every person in position of authority was placed by God into those positions. That's important because this means then that verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. We're to respect and honor governing authorities not because they're powerful or because they're influential or because they make decisions that we like and agree with or that follow our political proclivities, but because they have been appointed by God. One man put it this way, no matter what form it takes, no human government at any time in history, at any place on earth, among any people on earth, at any level of society has ever existed or will ever exist apart from the sovereign authority of God because all power belongs to God. Unless we think we're reading that into this text, let me point, your, point you to several other texts. Daniel 2, 21. He changes times and seasons. God removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
Daniel 4.17. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. We think about Israel as they are being taken captive by the Babylonian Empire, ripped from their homes and taken to a foreign land, not by their own will, against their own desires. And Jeremiah, God through the prophet Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 29.7, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God instructed Israel as they are being taken against their own will, captive into Babylon, to begin to pray for Babylon's success. Another man put it this way. Since God has appointed human rulers, the person who opposes them is opposing as in a state of rebellion against the ordinance of God. And such opposition will ultimately lead to eternal condemnation. What does it mean to resist this authority? It refers to the attitude of the one who will not admit that government has a legitimate right to exercise authority over them. We might say, but they are evil people. And God is not talking about our current leaders because they're evil. But this is a naive argument. As the Roman leaders of the day that Jesus spoke and Paul spoke, and as we'll see Peter speaks, made even our most immoral leaders look like Sunday school teachers. Guys like Nero who would cover you in tar for being a Christian and hang you in his garden and light you on fire or feed you to lions. We might say, the authority today is the Constitution, not the specific leader. Or, or the authority today are the people. We're the authority because we vote, not that specific leader. But bo both past points missed the passage. The word authority here refers to the one exercising the authority, playing it out. That extrapolates in our system to those elected leaders themselves. We might say... Listen, God is, can certainly not be speaking about leaders who persecute Christians, could he? But many of the Christians to whom Paul is writing here in Romans 13 in Rome had recently been forced by the Roman Empire to leave their homes and businesses and go into exile and live in, in graves, in catacombs. Jesus and Paul are both stating very clearly that believers are to be model citizens known as law-abiding, not rioting, obedient, not, not rebellious, respectful of government, not demeaning of it. Yes, we must speak against sin and against injustice and against immorality and ungodliness. When we see it with boldness, we ought to speak against those things. But we must do it within the framework of civil law and with respect for our civil Authorities. You see, Christians are to be the godly ones in society. 
We're to be marked by doing good and living peaceably in an ungodly society, boldly proclaiming the gospel so that the saving power of God can be clearly seen. Paul gives no qualification or condition to this submission. There, there's no exceptions related to the ruler's competence or incompetence or morality or immorality or cruelty or kindness or even godliness or ungodliness. Unless we think that this is something that we're reading again into the text, Peter addresses the same issue. 1 Peter 2, 13-17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And again, that emperor was Nero. Peter tells his readers to be subject to every governing institution from the emperor all the way down to the local magistrate then peter is clear it is god's will that we do this through this submission we demonstrate god's glory to a lost and dying world it will close close the mouths of those who slander christians and again, the Roman Empire at the time Peter wrote was Nero, and Peter himself would later be put to death by that very emperor. God expects Christians to be subject even to human authorities who are neither believers nor morally upright. It's important that we respect our government, even if we cannot respect them as people in the office. As much as possible, we should seek to cooperate with the government, and obey the law. But we must never allow the leader to make us violate or disobey God's word. Unfortunately, some serious but ignorant Christians use these differences as opportunities for conflict and loud sermons about freedom and separation of church and state. But Paul instructs Timothy in 1 Timothy 2 instead, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. If we say that we're believers, but we don't obey God in submission to our civil authority, then we are hypocrites. Little has done more damage to the spreading of the gospel in our society than Christians who blatantly rebel against government because they don't like their decisions or politics. But what about those times that the government does order us to do things 
that clearly violate the word of God? What should we do? Does that mean we submit to government even though it violates the word of God? Well, clearly the answer is no. And Christ addressed this. We're to submit to God's earthly authority, but we're also to submit to God's divine authority. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus' statement that we should submit to civil authority was not a simple pro-Roman statement, nor are my statements this morning simple pro-government statements. We submit to authority because they are placed there by God. God is the higher authority. In most cases, then, Christian submission to government will involve obeying what government tells the Christian to do. But government doesn't have the absolute right over believers. That only belongs to God. This means, then, that Christians may continue to submit to a particular government, acknowledging and respecting that government, while, in a particular case, disobeying a specific act or command by that government in obedience to the higher authority. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to government would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then we're to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. But there's an important implication here that Jesus is making towards these leaders and, frankly, towards American Christianity. You're not submitting to civil authority, and you're not submitting to God's authority either. You're only submitting to yourself. You're using God's authority to claim a reason not to submit to civil authority. But you're not obeying God's authority either. If you fail to submit to civil authority because you're saying you're going to obey God rather than man, then you had better be submitting to God's authority wholly in every area of your life, not just picking and choosing. This also means that this insubordination should be done in the way God commands, with a Christian attitude. It is done with an attitude of grace and love, not an attitude of arrogance or exasperation or rebellion. It means that when you say you're obeying God in it, you'd better be quoting God right. You better be sure that the text you're using is what the text actually says and means. Not reading your opinion into the text. Because God is not honored by hypocrisy in any way. Throughout the past few months, I personally have been deeply saddened by the response of many believers to decisions government has made that they didn't like. Some have responded rightly, and that's a blessing. They've submitted but worked within the order of government to try and en enact change via you know, peaceful protest or via letters to elected officials or participating in government itself and hopefully voting. But others have gone beyond those things and exemplified a rebellious, spiteful, and ungodly spirit in their refusal to obey the government in areas that do not disobey God. So as you go to rebel, you better ask, does this very clearly violate what God told me to do or tell me not to do? 
You see, this refusal has damaged the cause of Christ. On the other hand, we have seen some situations that have called for civil disobedience in order to obey God. Some situations have been very clear-cut situations. For example, in California, the governor there uh, commanded, told churches that they are not allowed to sing when they meet. Except the Bible tells us that when we gather, we are to sing. It is a command from God for when we gather. And so, in that case, we must sing. God should be obeyed. That was an overreach by government. In our own context, some of these situations are not as clear, but still exist. Initially, the order to cease meeting uh, did not violate the command to not forsake assembling together, as that word forsake means to turn your back on and give up on the church. We weren't doing that. However, as the months stretched on, this did become more and more of a legitimate question. At what point are we actually doing that? Are we violating this command because it's been so long? And and this becomes an important conversation, an important discussion in our leadership team. Should we be asked to close again? Because we had been closed so long, would that be a violation? It's not clear-cut, but it must be a discussion. But even more important is the hypocrisy we demonstrate when we enthusiastically proclaim a rebellious spirit against the government, claiming that we must obey God rather than man, while we disobey God in many other areas of our lives. If we proclaim that we're going to disobey civil authority because we're obeying God instead, we had better be model Christians. God's not honored by hypocrisy. These leaders came to Jesus as absolute hypocrites. They claimed they wanted an answer to a politically charged question, but Jesus revealed that their problem was that they did not want to submit to government or to God. They were only submitting to their own feelings and their own thoughts. This is the same problem today. So as we walk through these challenging waters, we need to ask the question, What I am being asked, the question is not what I am being asked, is it constitutional? The question is, what I am being asked to do, is it biblical? Does this violate Scripture? And if the answer is, God, it does not violate Scripture, then we submit and work within the process to try and change. We don't reveal a rebellious, angry, spiteful, arrogant spirit, for that is not of God. So let me conclude with four challenges to you today, what this looks like. And as I say this, understand, as I'm pointing a finger out, three more are pointing back at me. Number one, obey, honor, and pray for the leaders God has placed over you. This is the command of God. Obey, honor, and pray for the leaders God has placed over you. From our president, to our governor, to our representatives, to our mayors, to our city councils. Number two, obey God in every area of your life. Every area. Don't pick and choose. Don't be a hypocrite. Number three, understand God's word. 
so that when you must disobey, you're correct in your disobedience. Do the work to understand the text you're using. Understand God's word. Number four, be a picture of the gospel. Even in your obedience and disobedience, be a picture of the gospel. As you do what you do, as you obey or disobey, can you right then share the gospel and it fits what you're doing? Let's pray. Father, we live in incredibly challenging times, as you know and you have sovereignly ordained. And it is incredibly hard at times to obey this command. Particularly when decisions are made that don't make sense, that we don't agree with, that frustrate us, but that aren't unbiblical. Lord, help us to respond as believers. Not to be spiteful or spew venom towards our leaders, not to slander or gossip them, but to pray for them and to work within the system to enact change. Help us to care more about the kingdom of God than the kingdom of America so that you might bless this land. Help us to do right. Lord, we need it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.